Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello, everybody. This is the Carpe Consensus podcast. Welcome to the show. My name is Ben Schiller. I'm the features editor here at Coindesk. Uh, And joining me today is Cam Thompson. Hey, Cam. Hi, Ben. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you. And uh, also joining me is Danny Nelson. Uh, And Danny Nelson, I believe has a new device in his hand. What is that device, Dan? Yes, this doodad is the Solana phone, the much-anticipated Android device that is said to be the future of uh, finance by very few people. Not myself, to be sure. I'm trying to understand how to use this thing. I'm an iPhone user, and this is an Android. And let me tell you, Android is basically like 80% of the way to iPhone, but they couldn't finish the last 20% because it would be like too obviously the same. So the last 20% is just worse phone. So I'm not impressed. Although I'm not not impressed by the crypto part. I just don't like the phone. Danny, very important question for you. Yeah. Are the texts green? The texts are green. And, you know, as an elitist iPhone user, I can't bring myself to be texting all my lovely uh, blue text people with green. Can't even make a group chat. I can't even make a group chat. Yeah. When this thing arrived, I tried to set it up and I promptly screwed it up. And none of the wallets worked and the Solana DAP store didn't work and nothing worked. And I I had to call tech support, which was like the head of strategy for Solana. He's like, figure it out. So I figured it out. They airdropped me some money that I don't know what to do with because that would technically be a bribe. Now I'm just trying to understand how to interact with Web3 on my mobile device. Can you actually make a phone call with it then? Yes, I can. It has the capability to make phone calls. Wow, it's an impressive feature for a phone. And when you pick up, it's it's actually Anatoly's voice. (laughs) (laughs) No way. So what makes it a Solana phone then? Well, for starters, this lovely engraved S on the background, as you can see, it's like a it's like a brand. So apart from the engraving, oh, um, well, when you start it up, it also says Solana. Um, (laughs) Apart from that, so the real answer is. There's a part of every cell phone, which is like the secure enclave where the most important credentials and things live. And this is all modern smartphones. That's a really good place to store something like a seed phrase. 
or something of that sort because it's a very secure spot on the phone. No other phones have access to the secure enclave for random bits and doodads quite like the Solana phone does because no other phones are configured the way the Solana phone is. Now, I haven't had the opportunity to fully like appreciate or understand what difference it means for me as a user to have this like really important seed phrase on the secure enclave of the phone, as opposed to just having it in my password manager, which is a terrible idea, and I highly recommend no one does that. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it definitely has some security upgrades that may or may not be of actual usefulness for the user. And it does make phone calls. Well, nice. thank you for that quick product review, Danny. Uh, I think we should move on now to other matters, shall we? Let's get to it. All right, we're going to get to Inside the Desk now. This is where we look at some uh, recent reporting by Coindesk reporters and editors. And we have a bumper bumper story today, which is about the demise of Paxful. So Paxful was, I think we can say was at this point, a peer-to-peer -peer exchange based in Africa and was responsible at one point for many of the transactions involving Bitcoin on that continent. And it's rather sad, I think, to see this project demise because it had a lot of traction at one point and was seen as a torchbearer for crypto adoption on that continent. So we had a story recently about what led to its fall, uh, and it was titled Drugs, Erratic Dismissals and Feuding Founders Behind Bitcoin Marketplace Paxfuls Unraveling. All right, so Cam, I'm going to throw this to you. I mean, it seems like this is a tale less about Bitcoin and crypto adoption and more about the company itself and its rather poor and lazy management. What do you think? That's exactly what it's about. I think that the timing of Paxful shutting down is very interesting, and it makes it seem as if there could be regulatory concerns that are fueling this peer-to-peer -peer exchange to cease operations. However, after reading the story, you uncover a lot more about this ongoing feud between the two founders and some of the inner workings and underlying issues that were going on in the workplace, at the company, a lot of people operating with different intentions in mind about how to run, how to run the exchange. So it's not about Bitcoin. It's just about this corporate structure that just seemed to not be able to overcome its issues. Right. Just to give an example of that, I mean, the two founders that we're talking about, one was Ray Youssef, who's a very uh, prominent Bitcoin advocate, and his sidekick, uh, Mr. Shabak. And the latter has sued Youssef in a Delaware court, claiming that Youssef was using the coffers of Paxful to fund his own lifestyle, basically, and, and also his cohorts in, in Paxful. And that included uh, smoking marijuana and going to music festivals and other things that were not typically, uh, are not typically aligned with a crypto company's mission. So what struck you from this article, uh, Cam? It was interesting reading some of the claims that Shabak made against Youssef and Youssef denying some of those claims and just the ongoing back and forth between these two once buddy buddy founders who had a flourishing exchange to an exchange that ceased to operate and this impending lawsuit. I think it's definitely interesting to read over some of that and think about what actually was going on on the ground, on the inside. I think it would be really interesting to hear from some employees there I will say, you know, Ben, you made a good point about Youssef uh, using money, allegedly using money in ways that to fund his own lifestyle, which include, you know, going to music festivals and smoking marijuana. And you characterize that as things that are not becoming of a crypto company. Now, I would agree and disagree with you because, you know, in my, in my travels through Miami and Chicago and elsewhere, 
I've been to music festivals where crypto companies emblazon their names. And I've been to, I think there was once in Miami, it was a hashish-themed crypto event, I think sponsored by Yat. And so it's just another moment where these two worlds like mesh together in uncomfortable ways. Now, in the case of Yusuf, I mean, it's a little different, right? He was using this money for his own attendance of a music festival and for his own uh, pot smoking, as opposed to for the community's enjoyment, which is what the uh, companies have done in the past. I will say I have spoken to Yusuf long in the past, I think three years ago at this point, and he stood out to me as one of those guys who really, you can tell in the wet, the sound of his voice, the, the fervor that he has, the, the mission-drivenness, at least, that he presents to the world. For him, it's very much, we're going to use Paxful, which was a peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchange where anyone can go on it and trade their Bitcoin with other people without directly, without having to use an exchange. Paxful could help make the case for Bitcoin adoption around the world. And it's unfortunate that whether or not that business model was succeeding, it ultimately has failed because of the disagreements between two key people. Yep. So uh, just to be clear, uh, nothing against uh, going to music festivals and smoking marijuana, but uh, the point I was trying to make was that normally that's not done on the company dime. It's done uh, out of your own personal savings. So uh, that's what I was meaning, Danny. There's another accusation in the lawsuit that Shabak leveled at Yousef, and that was that he paid a woman he, that he was romantically involved with uh, $30,000 a month for media consulting that was said to be uh, somewhat nondescript. So that's a good example of using company coffers, or at least allegedly, for funding uh, Yusuf's own enjoyment or pleasure. Danny, anything else on this? What, one thing that I noticed, Ben, is how this story seems to almost be a living document, right? There were comments from Yusuf before his publication in anticipation of it, and then also comments afterward where he provides information that adds color to a characterization of himself that you one would say is a positive one, such as that he took a pay cut in order to keep people on the payroll and other things to make him sound a little better. Just goes to show what the challenges that we have at Coindesk when reporting on these things. Well, we're looking for information and sometimes we don't even know what that information is, but we provide what we have. Sometimes the people that we write about are unhappy, often even, are unhappy with how we characterize them. And they have an opportunity then to come back to us and provide more information. What I really, really like about this story is the way that the authors, Helene and Frederick, characterize it at the start. They opened with a narrative lead where these anonymous individuals are pointing AK-47s in jest on top of a building in Miami near the Versace mansion. Just really great to put us in the right mindset and mood for a story which is really quite colorful. Yeah, they are actually AR-15s, but uh, we're not going to quibble with you, Danny. I'm sorry, as an American, I should know these things better. Another thing I want to add is I think that the structure of the story is really important and was laid out very well in order to document all of the various events from beginning of this flourishing peer-to-peer exchange to its downfall. Something that's hard to do, especially when trying to pick up all the pieces of information that sit in these large gaps of in-between sometimes, you know, when you don't hear about what a company's doing for a year or so. Or So props to Helene and Frederick for telling this story of these two feuding founders and lots of weed. Yeah, and also to the editor, Brad Cowan, he did a great job on this. 
I think just pick up on one point. I mean, we also had the demise of local Bitcoins recently, which is another peer-to-peer pioneer. Um, So it might be interesting to think about whether we think that the peer-to-peer model of Bitcoin or crypto exchange is sort of going away now. So go check out the piece. It's on uh, coindesk.com as we speak. It's called Drugs, Erratic Dismissals and Feuding Founders. And it's a damn good read and check it out. Okay, let's move on to our next item now. Joining us on the show this week is our uh, friendly competitor, Jeff John Roberts, the crypto editor at Fortune Magazine. Jeff has been in the crypto world for a while now, and he's taken those talents, those observations, and Fortune's firepower and created a new list for the crypto space to judge itself by the Fortune Crypto 40. Now, Jeff, I'd love to start off this part of the show just by asking you, what was the impetus for creating this list? Now, you know, Fortune is already well known for having other types of lists like the Fortune 500. Why does crypto deserve its own? Uh, Well, Danny, first, thanks for having me on. This is fun. But as for the Crypto 40, um, Fortune's bread and butter is companies. The Fortune 500 is, of course, the iconic list of the biggest companies in the world by revenue. And there's, while there's plenty of lists in crypto, like the coolest guys in crypto and the best Lambos and this and that, there's not, as far as I could tell, anything empirical to rate companies that really matter. It's, you know, easy to spin up a list. I think we've all done it as journalists. You know, you just kind of sit around with your buddies and pick, you know, who you like best. But um, so I want to do something new. And to answer your question more directly, too, after crypto's horrible year, I think a lot of people sort of, you know, assume the whole industry is, you know, sinking and scammy and so on. But um, if you look around, you'll actually see dozens of, you know, successful companies run by honest people doing good things. And I just felt after the year crypto had, it was time to call some of them out. And since it kind of dovetailed with Fortune's largest franchise, um, it seemed to fit. Now, being featured in magazines sometimes is a bad omen for companies, right? Like sometimes you have someone like a Sam Bankman-Fried on the cover and it turns out not so good. Are you worried that you're cursing 40 different companies right now? <laughs> uh, maybe, yeah. What is it? What is the famous magazine curse? I can't remember what you appear on. And it's, I, can't I think it was Sports, Sports Illustrated or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a dicey proposition because, you know, yeah, guilty as charged. We put SBF on the cover of Fortune. I mean, we're not the only ones. Um, and obviously, we don't want to do that again. And, you know, with crypto, as with any other industries, can be bad actors. And in this list of 40, you know, I don't rule out the fact that some of them, you know, could turn out to be, you know, not what they seem. But um, part of a way we went to to prevent that is we did a heavy reputational quality. So we ran a survey of more than 200 crypto and finance executives to for them to attest to, you know, companies that are not their own, that they think have a good reputation. So we're hoping that will provide a bit of a screening mechanism. But, you know, otherwise, if any of these companies go down, it's more likely they've cursed themselves than I did it. But who knows? So, Jeff, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the different categories, the eight different categories that comprise this Crypto 40 list. And especially in the current state that we're at right now with a lot of regulatory uncertainty and especially that directed towards centralized exchanges. I'm curious, you know, about having a specific category dedicated towards CFI versus a bunch of others, you know, whether it be VC, NFTs, just a little bit of context about how you made those differentiations. It kind of happened by accident because we began planning to do just a single list, you know, the 40 or 50 best biggest companies in crypto by revenue. Well, guess what? Um, you know, it's a hard exercise because very few of these companies are public. And in some cases, you can approximate their revenue. But that was too hard. 
And then we started figuring out like, okay, let's find out other metrics, but you know, things of like developers on chain, you know, how does that, uh, if you want to evaluate companies like Coinbase and PayPal and Fidelity, that metric doesn't really hold up. It's just sort of a commensurability thing of how to kind of create apples to apples comparisons. And we kept splitting it and splitting until we found eight categories we feel are a fair fit. You know, again, you've got like something like Dune Analytics. How do you compare that to like Uniswap? And how do you compare that to OpenSea? And so, you know, in the end, we arrived at the eight categories, which I think hold up pretty well. Yeah. And for that one category, you just mentioned Dune being in the data category. It's really uh, impressive to me, the gamut of different companies that you have in that one. And it tells you a lot about crypto. Like you've got Chainalysis, which builds basically tracing tools for governments. You've got Coinmetrics, which provides token data. The graph, I really don't know what the graph does. But Dune is a little different because on Dune, anyone can build these data dashboards and have these products that it's basically almost like a, a Wikipedia of sorts where anyone can be a contributor. And you don't always know that the data is right, but it's, it's pulling from somewhere and it's quite uh, impressive. And then Masari is another data provider, but that's more of a traditional company. So really just in that one list, it speaks to the widespread nature of crypto from government tracing to open source contributions. Yeah, for sure. And the other intriguing thing about this process is a lot of them are not all companies. You're in crypto land, you're dealing with like DAOs and nonprofits and something like the Ethereum Foundation. What do you do with that? So that's why we started a protocol category, which is, you know, a bit of an outlier. But, you know, it's, it's just those foundations are so important to larger crypto ecosystem. We had to find a way to tuck them in there. So, you know, that always also made the exercise sort of a challenge. But, you know, I think ultimately it's just trying to find a word. Are they companies? Well, not really. Some of them are. You know, are they nonprofits? Are they entities? So, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's just shows, as to your point, Danny, you know, the incredible diversity of the crypto landscape these days. And on that diversity, like I'm looking at the protocols list and I'm seeing Bitcoin next to Polygon. Now, that certainly is going to rub some people the wrong way. Have you experienced any pushback for the decisions that were made on this list? No, I mean, you know, there was, we created the metrics ahead of time and I had a guy in Britain who's a statistician kind of run the numbers. So go find him if you're really angry. But answer to question, yes, my, you know, my Twitter feed's been like a dumpster fire, but that's part of the course in this industry. Um, you know, the Bitcoin <laughs> crazies and so on. You get used to it. So, you know, I mean, that's God made the block button for a reason. So it's, it's all good. But there has been a localized eruption of the dumpster fire because of this list. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. The Bitcoin people's noses are out of a joint. And then who knows, like, you know, Binance has got a tribe who are mad at me. And then the XRP weirdos are like mad because Ripple's not on the list. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, by and large, I think with any list, it can be university rankings, it can be best looking people, whatever sort of list you're making. The people who are not on it or, you know, place lower than they believe they should be are going to take it out on you. But, you know, we, we have thick skin. So I think I'll be fine. But thanks for your support, Danny. Of course, you know we we here at CoinDesk we make our foibles too. Uh, not that <laughs> not that this one is a foible, but in the public's eye, any list can be a foible. With uh, with CoinDesk's most influential, we uh, get pushback yes. for this decision or that decision, or you know, how come there were no Bitcoiners on the list? You should have a Bitcoiner on the list every year. Well, you know, if we had the same Bitcoiner, the ten Bitcoiners on the list every year, it doesn't really provide any value to people. These are tough decisions that we always have to make. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Bitcoiners are kind of their own worst enemy. I mean, they are like the biggest first and, you know, most influential chain, but they're, uh, the way they advocate for Bitcoin is, you know, I don't know, I think, you know, perhaps some of them could use it as a kinder, softer approach, but it's crypto. So you get what you get. 
So Jeff, there are a number of very familiar names on the list, like uh, Coinbase, for instance, which you know a lot about having written a book about the company uh, and Kraken. I was wondering if you could just pick out some names that are maybe less familiar to readers and listeners. I mean, I think one of them, uh, Danny mentioned before, is The Graph, which is a bit of a wonky service. It's kind of a uh, on-chain sort of data provider organizing, you know, kind of like Oracle information. Not the sort of sexiest project, but, you know, it's got a lot of, you know, participants and a lot of activity going on there. That's one. Um, you know, I think we all have our own areas of expertise. Some of the um, NFT ones, which are not my strong point, you know, I didn't realize that Artifact was a big thing and owned by Nike. And uh, like, likewise, art blocks, which, you know, sort of thing, once you learn about it, you realize it's very influential. But I confess, I wasn't familiar with it before. Jeff, I'm curious about the infrastructure category a little bit. You know, I'm pretty familiar with some of these companies, such as Ledger, Alchemy, and MoonPay. Bitmain, not so much. But yeah, I'm curious about determining the different companies in this specific section and what, I guess, constitutes a successful infrastructure company for crypto at this point in time that we're at right now? Yeah, I mean, infrastructure, again, is not high up there on list of sexy companies. I mean, I remember using, I used to cover tech and covering like cloud computing companies. These are, you know, very big, important companies, but the reality is like they're really boring and people generally don't want to talk or read about them. But, you know, in crypto as well, I think what Alchemy does, you know, I mean, allowing companies to plug into like the Ethereum blockchain and other chains, you know, I think those sort of services are, are, are really important. In terms of like what makes them, I mean, I think revenue is a big part of this category. Can't give away the whole secret sauce of how we did it. And I don't have the full methodology at my fingertips. But the way we did it is, you know, we compiled the relevant methodology for, you know, the given category through in sort of like, you know, 15 or 20 companies and then just repair them down, sometimes with surveys, sometimes by applying various metrics. But in some ways, a lot of this is just conventional business. I think, too, the crypto industry needs a little less narrative and more kind of like dollars and cents. Do you have like a product? Do you have, you know, a sound business plan? Are you making money? You know, can you keep the lights on for the next five years? So I think a category like this, that probably was, you know, an example where rather than pie in the sky, you know, win token one day thing, we're looking at companies that, you know, just like, I don't know, like a construction company or a law firm or, you know, a hot dog cart, you know, has to, you know, figure out how to sell things and pay people and come up with a viable business. So this category, I think, really showed that. That's a very refreshing way to look at it, Jeff, to look at the actual business fundamentals of some of these enterprises. I'm just wondering about how you went about sort of comparing these very different types of entity. And this is something we struggled with when we were drawing up our own lists. I mean, how do you compare like a decentralized autonomous organization with a classic corporate with an LLC to, you know, all the other types of strange and wonderful uh, organizations that are out there in crypto? I mean, how do you compare apples and oranges like this? Yeah, I mean, as I said before, too, I mean, I think it's a testament to the industry. I think if we'd done this exercise 10 years ago, you know, it would have been a lot easier because it would have been like maybe 20 companies you could name and they would all be on the list. But it's a categorization problem. But I, you know, I think one familiar to, you know, I'm, no, I'm not a philosopher, but, you know, in terms, terms of like, how do you group like and like together? I used to, uh, you know, uh, not really be involved with, but the university rankings thing, which, you know, is kind of another big game and in industry. And how do you compare like a full-blown, like 50,000 student public university to like a small private liberal arts college? Comparing best athletes, like how do you compare, I don't know, like a ballet dancer to a linebacker, you know, and I think at a certain point, you just kind of start grouping like qualities together until you have your category. I mean, this is about my pay grade, but I'm sure there's some, you know, philosophy or law professor out there who could give you a better answer. But, you know, in, in our case, we just sort of stumbled forward until it made sense. 
how do you measure success or how did you measure success for the VCs? Because it's update season for all these VCs and their public information. So this is the one time of year where journalists are able to look into their books and see things like how much an assets under management Polychain has and Pantera. And broadly speaking, all of these VCs have lost sometimes billions of dollars in assets from one year to the next. In this kind of climate, which is still crypto winter-ish, even though it seems to be thawing in some respects, how do you measure which VCs are getting their job done? That's a good question. And in a down year, too, it's it's a lot harder to assess, you know, like things like Multicoin, which I think has lost, blew a bunch of money on Terra and lost a bunch of their money. I mean, they didn't qualify, not just for that reason, but but in terms of assessing, the, first off, just a category two, you might have noticed in the list it favored incumbents, you know, and, and that's especially the case in, in, in VC land because exit's one of the criteria and newer entities like Han or, uh, or Variant aren't, you know, in position to really have exits yet. I don't know. Venture capital, too, it's, it's just sort of one of those things that just seems to, you know, oscillate between, wow, they're all geniuses and look at all the great bets they made and these, you know, this firm's made gobs of money and the next year it's all in the toilet. I just think, you know, like the tech industry, like the crypto industry, it's extremely volatile. So it's just a matter of picking metrics that would make sense in a good year or bad. I mean, if we were having this conversation a year and a half ago, we would all be just kind of like going and awing on how much money they'd all made. So I think the the rankings we came up with, even though it's, you know, they're, they're, everyone on the list performed horribly this year, um, the list still stands up. Great. Uh, I mean, do you think when you talk about uh, assessing companies based upon their actual balance sheets and their actual products and their actual viability, do you think that's kind of a reflection of the time that we're living in now, that there's kind of this reassessment of crypto, not for what it could deliver, but what it actually is delivering? Yeah, I mean, I think for us in the media after last year and the whole you know FTX debacle, I think we've all learned to be more skeptical and look harder. And as I said earlier, let's not just rely on personalities and metrics, but let's, you know, these companies are ultimately businesses like any other venture. And as you know, the industry matures and grows, they're going to start having more of these metrics we can evaluate. And the other thing we want to do with the list too is promote transparency too. You know, if you refuse to tell us anything, well, that's not really a good look. So I think, you know, of course, like a private company, it can be in any industry, tech or whatever, they're not going to open up their books to you just because you want them to. But, you know, at the same time, I think there has got to be sort of a baseline of transparency and best business practices, which, you know, even though it's crypto, I don't think it's a crazy thing to demand. Not too much to ask. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us on the show. And just to our listeners, please check out Fortune's Crypto 40 list, bringing you the biggest and most important names in the crypto space through eight categories. Thanks again, Jeff, for joining us on the show. Yeah, very kind. It was fun. Thanks, all of you. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. Hey guys, it's Cam's Corner. Welcome back. This week, we are going to be talking about NFTs and the meme economy. Now, this is something that we talk about a lot when it comes to NFTs. When it comes to cryptocurrency, I mean, just last week we saw Elon change Twitter's logo to Doge and the price of the coin move on that. But this is more about how NFTs really thrive on the meme economy, but it also might lead to their ultimate downfall. So 
I wrote a story with Rosie Perper. She is the deputy managing editor of Web3 at Coindesk. And we were looking at the Nakamigos NFT collection and a recent spinoff called Magamigos, which is MAGA. And the spinoff collection was trending on OpenSea immediately after Trump's arrest. So taking a look at how some of these collections inspire these spinoffs because of memes that are circulating and what it really tells us about how people create NFT collections and what it means for the meme economy to be powering a lot of Ethereum into the market, but also not really providing a lot of legitimate reason for them to stay. So this was a really interesting story to dig into, and I could talk about it a lot, but I want to hear you guys talk. Well, for me, you know, we see so many NFTs pop up that are topical, right? They're just taking advantage of a trend and saying, look, you like this joke? Well, now you can buy some sort of visual representation of that joke. And then you have Magamigos, which is a ripoff of Nakamigos that also was commentary on Trump's uh, arraignment in New York. I, I think it's beautiful, really, just mm-hmm. the ability for people to make poor financial decisions and in exchange acquire uh, crappy NFTs. It's quite amazing. I have done it before. I have invested in these things. Or rather, let me rephrase that. I have not invested in these things. I have gambled on these things because that's what you're doing when you're participating in the meme economy. You're basically gambling that the thing that you're buying into will maintain relevancy beyond the point of you realizing that it was a bad idea to buy in the first place and trying to sell to someone else. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I want to pass judgment on this. I mean, this is capitalism at work, right? And there are all kinds of things in the real world at Walmart that uh, I think are stupid to buy and, you know, but people buy them and I don't pass judgment on them. So um, I think if people want to buy these silly things, then let them go ahead and waste their money. So that's completely valid. I understand both of your takes. And in fact, something that I was talking to Sergio Silva, who is the NFT lead at Fireblocks, he was discussing how it kind of acts as a double-edged sword in the sense that if NFTs are reliant on the meme economy to fuel content and content inspiration, it's a great way to onboard people because memes are so easy to understand, right? They're one of the most simple forms of attention. I mean, you just look at something and you laugh or you save it or you like it or you share it. I mean, memes circulate like crazy. But in a way, a lot of these collections that just pop up randomly overnight because something's trending, I mean, what's their long-term value there, right? Like, you know, Trump's arrest isn't going to be a trending topic. It's not even trending anymore. It has a lifespan of maybe two or three days. Maybe it'll come back when there's more details. Memes don't really have a long shelf life, per se, unless you're Pepe and you just transcend all that. You know, (laughs) Pepe's always going to be popular. I mean, mean, normally art has shelf life because it's beautiful, right? It's fundamentally... When you look at a Degas or a Matisse or something, you know, it's stood the test of time, not only because it has value in a marketplace, but because it has inherent worth as beauty. So uh, I think a lot of NFTs just don't really fall into that category, right? They, they're not beautiful in the sense in themselves. Therefore, they're not going to last the test of time. So, I mean, even something like Bored Apes, which has become a billion dollar franchise. I mean, would you say that these things are really beautiful? I wouldn't say they're beautiful. I would say they're interesting to look at. But they're not something you would really want to put on the wall and uh, gaze up at. Would you want to put a people on your wall? Because I personally find people's work mostly, most often gruesome, right? 
Now, one could say that he's more of an artist, right, than the person who created Magamigos, for sure, because Beeple is creating something that's artwork. Now, his art is kind of horrendous, in my opinion, and I don't like it. But people are still willing to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for a Beeple. Well, they, they used to be willing to pay that. I don't know if they are anymore. Is that a sign that people's art is beautiful and will transcend that test? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think uh, a lot of times this debate gets kind of muddled because people ask you to be open-minded and say, oh, just appreciate this uh, digital art. And personally, I do appreciate it. But a lot of it is fundamentally, artistically speaking, crap, you know. So I, I might have an open mind about digital <laughs> art, but I'm not going to say it's uh, nice when it's not nice, you know. Cam's coming in with a hot take. I want to go back to what you said earlier about Bored Apes. Um, that's not Yuga's intention. I don't think that's a lot of people buying those NFTs intention. and. Bored Apes, this Yuga empire has really stood the test of time when it comes to this nearly two and a half year period that NFTs oh, stood have been popular. Stood the test of time, two years. Okay, How long okay, has the Mona Lisa I been around? Relatively speaking, then. Okay, relatively speaking. But the thing is, is people aren't buying these tokens because they're art. They're buying them because of what they offer. You get exclusive access to this community of holders. You can go to the Ape Fest. You can go to the other side metaverse. You can go to all of these different places and have this community that just thrives on the fact that everyone holds these NFTs that have gotten so much more expensive over time and will likely continue to do so. So, so Cam, do you know anyone who has a board ape? Because I'd really be interested in learning why they do. Not, I, I mean, I know a few, like, obviously I know some sources who have board apes. I don't really have any friends who are, you know, just NFT collectors or pretty new to the nft space who just casually have a board ape that i could ask about i mean i could certainly ask about the reasons behind why some of these people have board apes and what has fueled their interest in having one and dear listeners if you own an nft of this sort if you own one of these blue chips these board apes these crypto punks tell us why leave a review tell us on on the facebook I won't check if it's on the Facebook, but tell us on the Twitter, tell us on the LinkedIn, give us a ring on my Solana phone even, and tell us why you own these things, because I surely don't understand it. All right, that was Cam's Corner. Thanks for listening to the NFT shenanigans. There will always be more, so make sure to come back next week. And that's the show. Thanks for listening to Carpe Consensus. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Danny. We'll catch you next week with some more exciting things. And I can't believe it. We're two weeks away from consensus. This is insane. Can't believe it's almost here. If you have not got your ticket yet, make sure you do. April 26th through 28th in Austin. It's going to be a great time. We're going to hang out. Make sure if you're there, come say hi to us. We'll be recording. We'll be hanging around. I'll be wearing cowboy boots. I will also be wearing cowboy boots. Fantastic. We'll be matching when we record. Yes. See y'all next week. Bye. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>